Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Kerry, welcome back to the show. Thanks. It's great to be back here. Yeah, it's been a while since we spoke. I think the last time we spoke may have been on Self Wealth Live um, when mm-hmm. we talked about some of the indicators for 2023. It's always refreshing to get your take on things. But I thought maybe to have a bit of fun to kick today's uh, session off, I'm going for a man versus machine, man versus AI. I asked uh, Google Bard for a list of the most important economic indicators, um, and it came up with 10, and they seemed okay. But I'm curious, you know, we hear a lot of economists and commentators in the news. If I was to give you the same question, which is like, what are the most common economic indicators that you use to form a view around what's happening in the, the world? What would they be? It's a good question. Uh, I'm a little scared that if I get this wrong, I'm going to be replaced by <laughs> AI and Google Bard. I feel like this is more of a job interview. Uh, I hope my boss doesn't listen. Um, no, it's a great question because, um, first off, we often don't think about what are the 10 things we watch. We, we When I speak to clients, I think about um, how I would talk about the economy broadly and relates to markets. Uh, so it was an interesting exercise to go back through and, and actually look at what we produce and, and how we look at it. And so when I did that, I broke it down to thinking about, well, what actually contributes the most to the economy? So you know, the first indicator we want to look at is actually GDP growth. We want to look at how that's moving on annual and a quarterly basis to get a sense of momentum in the economy. But that's backward looking. You know, mm-hmm. It's going to tell us where we've been. So the next thing we look at is obviously the labor market. So we want to see how people are feeling, You know, what's the job prospects, because that's going to feed into a lot of other things. So there we're looking at the unemployment rate and mm-hmm. we're looking at wage growth. So two things that are very relevant in today's context. We're thinking about inflation as well. Uh, related to that, labor market. So I'm up to three. We're looking mm-hmm. about the consumer. Uh, so obviously there we're going to capture retail sales figures. Okay. Not perfect in terms of what it means for growth, but you know it's the best and most frequent number we have around that. And a little bit, I wouldn't necessarily like group these together, but I think in the Australian context, and I'm thinking about these numbers in the Australian context, related to that is obviously housing because it's yeah. you know such a big momentum factor in terms of uh, people's sentiment towards spending money and how they feel and that wealth effect. So we'll look at housing there in terms of prices, constructions, um, and then financing as well. So that brings me up to five. And I think housing is important because it's about seven and a half percent of GDP as well. Um, right. Going to look at the the corporate side of things because that you know investment outside of housing is another big chunk of it. So there, I'll look at private capex and, and see when the spending plans are coming through in terms of how businesses are feeling. 
And then on the external side of things, we've captured all the domestic economy. We want to look at trade. So we're thinking oh, yeah. about obviously uh, the current account balance and then obviously the trade balance. Again, very important. We think about Australia, given how open we are to the rest of the world, how reliant we are on commodities still uh, in terms of what's happening globally. And the last two, pretty straightforward. Obviously, what all that means for inflation and then what that means for, for monetary policy and the rates outlook. So those are the broad 10 economic indicators that we'll look at. And then obviously, if we were thinking really trying to capture what's happening in the economy, we would look at the dollar, we would look at bond yields, and we would look at the equity market as well. But that would be 10, 11, 12, <laughs> oh, sorry, <laughs> 11, 12, 13. So yeah. I've stopped there. Yeah, it's, it's clear that um, there are so many, right? There are so many important factors. And it's like from the JP Morgan asset management side of things, how you know you need to, you need to be so well resourced to be able to answer these types of questions, to be able to speak on them. We're just talking off air about, you know, how many things you do in the media and how, like what you have to comment on. Um, so Google Bard's answer was nowhere near as polished as that. Uh, it was just basically, here's the list of 10. But then what- safe. safe. You're safe. So <laughs> man one, machine zero. Um, but for the second part of this question, what I also asked uh, Google Bard to do was I said, hey, okay, okay, give me some forecasts for some of these things uh, and tell me what you think. And I think you were right when we were speaking about this. It doesn't always capture the most up-to-date information. So it was trying to make forecasts for the year ahead. 2023, it thought was the year ahead. Um, and it, it seemed reasonable, but some of them were very, very wrong in terms of what data it must have been relying on or something like this. So can I get you to step through maybe the five things that I thought were really uh, interesting to our audience, which are, I'll, I'll rattle them off and then we can spend a bit of time on them. Inflation and rates. So those are the first two. Uh, retail sales, which you mentioned before. Housing starts and unemployment. Seem like they're making their way through every economic update right now. They're like in the first paragraph. We can take these however you like and we can go back and forth. No rush because this is like kind of the meat of what our audience is thinking about. Yeah, and they're all related. They're all going to have some um, impact on the others when we think about how those things actually move together. Um, and that exercise, because you know, obviously the data and, and how up to date the data is that's feeding into some of these AI engines is limited. It's an exercise to ask it if it thought the year was 2022, what's going to happen in 2023 oh, yeah. with hindsight to say, man, actually things didn't really transpire like the data showed it would. Um, and that's very been experience. We look at how markets have behaved and the economies have behaved around the world this year. So uh, maybe that's something we'll explore more. Yeah. So, Sorry, digress from your question. No, 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 um, fair. Just taking those, you know, in turn, I mean, inflation, uh, that's the big one because that's the thing that's sort of driving markets at the moment and thinking about rates as well. Um, you know, our view on inflation, and this is again in the Australian context, is lower. I mean, we had uh, inflation peak at sort of 8.4% end of last year. Mm. Uh, the monthly read that came out this week, you know, it's under 5% now. That disinflationary trend is very clearly there. Um, so it's easy to say inflation should be lower over the next 12 months. Um, the things that matter is just like, how fast it comes down and where it actually ends up. Does it mean it goes back to 2% for the for the RBA or, or 2 to 3% for their policy target? Or does it sit at four um, and mm. not the five it currently is at? So lower is a bit of a, a bit of an easy answer. It's really how low and how quickly it gets there is what actually matters at the moment. Where have you been surprised by the direction of inflation so far? Like we're recording this just after halfway through the year, maybe three quarters of the way through. Have you been surprised? Um, it's been easier in the Australian context because we can look at what's happening in the US and that's sort of further in advance in that disinflationary process. They were, you know, for a lot of reasons coming out earlier of the, of the pandemic and releasing the restrictions and everything else. And so you could kind of look at that as, as a template and say, 
what's the been experience of people's behavior to these. Um, I mean, some of the fiscal response was different, but again, if you looked at that and mm. compared to what we've seen in Australia, it's, it's a very similar experience in terms of that very high peak in inflation, not as high as we had in the US, but then the path down has been a little bit more um, quicker than we had been expected. Um, but again, we're having that same debate now about you know, just how far going from eight to five or eight to 4.9 was pretty easy. You know, getting back down to sort of the two to three is going to be a lot more tougher in terms of some of the structural changes that we've had over the last few years. You know, for example, in the labor market, which may keep inflation higher. Mm. I was going to ask you about in- what that means for interest rates yet uh, next, but maybe there's a conversation, however you want to, wherever you want to go next could be unemployment or something like this. Because in, in, from what I've been reading and what I've been hearing is that's something that seems to be persistent. Like it's been a low unemployment rate. Yeah, I mean, there's these uh, you know academic relationships you can go back and look at. Uh, so the one that's sort of most prevalent at the moment is the the beverage curve, which looks at the <clears throat> the number of sort of vacancies relative to the unemployment rate, and you generally get this uh, downward shift as you know um, these things move together. Uh, but those uh, relationships have uh, changed, so they're showing that you can have much higher vacancy rates, and the movement in the unemployment rate is not as great. So it's kind of looking looking back at history should tell you one thing based on the data we have and what we're actually experiencing as a difference because we've had. Um, either you know a lot of people leave the workforce for various reasons, uh, or we've had the inability to get new supply of labour because of you know um, border closures. Mm. Um, so the first is relevant for the US context. We had a lot of the over 55s leave the labour market, and the participation rate declined quite uh, severely. And then the Australian context is the other one where we have a high participation rate, but we haven't had a new supply of labour because we had very low net migration. Those things are changing and coming back, mm. but there's no guarantee to to say what extent they'll go back to the, the pre sort of you know 2020 levels. So those structural changes are really shifting things. And while we do expect the unemployment rate to move higher because you're going to get you know less demand as the economy softens in our view a little bit, more supply of labour as people come in, you know, that means that you do get that unemployment rate nudge up. And, you know, an unemployment rate is actually a healthy thing because you have people just moving around in the labor market. So people are always unemployed at some point. Having an unemployment rate that's sitting at, you know, four percent or something is is low historically, but it's not a bad thing to have unemployment in the economy. I think people forget that. So it is a case of thinking about the unemployment rate moving higher, but those structural reasons may mean it doesn't go back to the, the peaks that it did in the past when we had a, a softening in the economy. Mm. Do you, so that's really interesting. Of course, the, um, the, the mig- net migration figure is really interesting. I, I was reading something the other day that fewer, fewer Australians are leaving, which is having the consequence of seeing like an increase in population. Um, with a softening economy, like how does, does that say to you that maybe this factor that we're so focused on being unemployment has the potential to surprise a lot of people and a lot of commentators? Yeah, it's a funny one because, again, it's a lagging indicator. It's, it's telling us what's happening. It's not sort of you know a survey or a forecast. It's, it's basically telling you how things have been in the past. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's one of the things where <clears throat> if you look at charts, you get these like big jumps in unemployment rate because the unemployment rate doesn't go up until suddenly yeah. the economy is much, much worse than you actually thought it was. So it can be one of these things that does surprise in terms of, you know, unemployment rate's like pretty low or it's pretty steady and then suddenly it jumps up massively. Again, we wish, wouldn't think that, that that leap that you might see should the Australian economy fall into recession would necessarily be as large either for 
man, it was really hard for people to find workers for a long period of time there. They'll just yeah. maybe do labor hoarding and keep those people on the books. Um, you could see the shift in how people are actually working, whether it's between part-time and full-time or the number of hours they work, which will indicate people actually want to work more because you know it's getting more expensive to live. So these are the things that we could see the unemployment rate. Yeah, it could surprise in the upside, but maybe maybe the upside isn't as high as it was in the past. And I think that's the, the more important factor because if it doesn't get so high, when things start to improve, you got to think about how far it can fall again. This is not in the list of five that I just gave you, <laughs> but um, bonus round. Yeah, bonus round. Here we go. We we've seen business confidence and consumer confidence. That's been. I mean, you're the expert here. At least from where I see it, like anecdotally, say, um, business confidence is seems to be taking a hit. How, how that's like as far as I'm aware, it's like a forward-looking indicator. Confidence mm. impacts spending, impacts investment, etc. How about that from the perspective we've got retail sales in here, so maybe we can tie this together. How does that fare as this, as we float through, I guess? Yeah, I mean, it's um, you look at the correlations between some of these surveys and what actually happens in the economy, uh, they're much tighter for some markets than they are for others. So right. again, I'll sorry, keep referencing the US, but you can look at the PMIs for manufacturing or services in the US or the ISM, for, mm -hmm. which is a business survey, really closely correlated with how growth goes. They're not so tight in the Australian context. Like right. the PMI numbers that come up for Australia were very, very weak, despite we went through a period of, of quite decent growth. So they're not as meaningful. When it comes to that, um, the business confidence uh, numbers that come out, so you know uh, they get produced by Snabrite, they look at the business confidence. It's actually the business conditions index. There's two that come out, which is actually more important for thinking about right. uh, where economy is growing. And often there's a bit of a divergence between, you know, how are things right now, conditions and businesses like, actually things are looking pretty good, we're okay with this. And then how do you think things are going in the future, which is your confidence? Well, you know, there's uncertainty around China, we don't know what that means, either have trouble finding labor or we're worried about a softening economy and you get that divergence. And, and generally there's a gap there and not always does that gap actually close. So business mm. conditions actually continue to be okay and everyone has that sort of relatively, maybe pessimistic or sometimes more optimistic view in the future, but it doesn't relate so much to how the growth experience actually goes through. Mm. So there's, there's, a, there's a merit in looking at them. I think there's also a caveat in terms of how reliable they are in terms of what the actual experience is later. And uh, similarly on the confidence side, uh, when you break it down, I think it's more important to look at, you know, what's driving that confidence. Is it household financing? Is it, you know, things like, should I buy a house? And, yeah. and it's those ones that are really important. And it's when you see that weakness and things about how do you feel about your household finances and how's that affecting your confidence as a consumer, that's going to be the bigger one that drives it. So it's really wow. important to look at what's driving those indicators more than just the, the headline level as well, because confidence is, is pretty low uh, in, mm. in, in Australia. But people are still spending money. Man, look at the retail sales numbers. Yeah, yeah, well, that's it. That's what I was going to say next. But maybe it's just the business owners I speak to—they're always negative. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, I think that if you, too, like, if, you, if, you, if you stick your head above the parapet and say everything's great, I mean, you're just like you know, and, and the economy is softening off, and everyone's looking at high rates and you know, mortgage payments going up, and yeah. and you're there going, no, things are great. Yeah. Um, you just yeah, send yourself up for a bit of a hit. Yeah, indeed. So retail sales—you mentioned that some of the companies that are on the ASX, you know, earnings. We've just had reporting season. Uh, some of those companies have come out and there's been mixed results. Like you got like, the likes of JB Hi-Fi saying, we're going to take market share, we're going to invest mm -hmm. aggressively. And then others have come out and said, well, actually, the results weren't as good as we'd expect. 
how do you see retail sales broadly speaking? Yeah, I mean, definitely in terms of the earnings season, that that resilience in the consumer was definitely a theme that played through. And again, come back to that near migration that that plays into some of how these stocks are thinking about the growth prospects out there. Um, in terms of the retail sales, I mean, if you look at a chart of it, it's just been all over the show. The year-on-year changes have been um, just swinging around because of, of all the experience of the last couple of years. So that makes them a little bit harder to, you know, is it catch up or is it unwind from what's happened in prior quarters? It's a bit of volatility in the monthly numbers. Um, but I think when you look at them today, actually, the latest number on a on a on a year on year basis was uh, about one and a half percent, if not a mm-hmm. little bit under that. That's low. I mean, if you look at sort of the pre twenty twenty kind of period, retail sales are somewhere around sort of maybe two three percent uh, for a pretty consistent period. So actually, if you said like for me, you know, twelve months now, what do you think the retail sales numbers will be on a year on year basis? I think they're going to be more like that sort of two to three percent, not the sort of one and a half they are at today, because you'll see uh, a little bit more stability and a lot of that data volatility that we've had over the last few years come out and we can get onto it, but there might be reasons why consumers are feeling a little bit better in a year from now. Okay. Well, we'll come to that in a second. Okay. One extra one that I've got on here before I get to interest rates was housing starts. Um, We've heard a lot of really kind of scary headlines around builders going bankrupt, people not being able to, like borrowing capacity down 40%. So mortgage brokers are telling me uh, people not able to buy, people not able to invest in their properties. Um, you know, some of the big builders on the ASX even saying, you know, it's a bit soft at the moment. We're trying to manage housing affordability, et cetera, et cetera. I guess maybe the first question based on what you said before, which was really interesting to me, is how much emphasis would you place on something like housing starts um, or dwelling approvals? And then is that something like that you can use to infer something about maybe you said, I think you said 7.5% was the housing? Yeah, if you break down GDP, it's about half a consumption and and then about 25% of, of government spending. This is GDP by expenditure. Right. Uh, and then you think about um, exports and housing, it's be about 7.5% each and uh, 10% roughly is, is investment ex housing. So wow. that's the, the big breakdown of the economy if you look at just like the last four quarters on average. So yeah, it's 7.5% ish. Um, so it's, it's not insignificant and it can have that impact on the economy. I think it will actually be a drag on growth over the next four months in terms of, of what the housing market is actually doing in terms of that investment side and residential investment. Um, but you're right, the, the, the forward-looking indicators are there is like, well, how, is it, how easy is it to get financing? Mm. And, and yet, okay, rates have gone up. Banks are probably thinking about their um, loan loss provisions and, and their balance sheet and what protections they need to have in place. So maybe getting financing is not so easy. If I can't get financing, am I going to go out and getting a building approval? Probably not. So mm. obviously that's going to come down. If I don't have a building approval, then am I thinking about commencements? Well, well that, that's just housing starts in Australia, commencements. Yep. Probably not. And then obviously completions is on the back of that as well. So if I don't start, how do I finish? So those things all sort of follow through with some degree of lag between them. There has been some, again, uh, sorry, terrible answer, but a lot of volatility in these numbers in terms of um, either the times it took to process, uh, process them because people weren't you know, in the office and they're working remotely and maybe it was a bit hard to make sure people were doing their jobs or the volumes of things of were coming through. So there was a lot of uh, big numbers that fell and then jumped up and came down again. Uh, and then most recently, the number on the, the housing starts was, was really weak. And you can break it down to think about uh, multifamily and then sort of single dwelling or residential. So obviously apartments versus single, mm. single houses. Uh, and the multi-family part is really volatile, jumps around a lot. And so when you take that out and just look at residential dwellings in terms of single dwellings, um, there was barely any movement in the month-to-month number. So mm. things, when you look below the surface, are a little bit more um, steady state relative to that. But more broadly on the property sector, I mean, there's definitely going to be that 
that weakness in investment as the, the impact of higher rates are still flowing through. These long and variable lags of monetary policy we always hear about are definitely there. Um, I think that you're seeing some stabilization given what we've seen in the housing prices coming through, but hardly uh, thinking about a massive recovery at this point. I think it's more about the supply and demand dynamics in the yeah. in the housing market and the the great system we have in Australia of auctions uh, <laughs> and how no one really knows what houses are worth until the day they actually sell. Yeah, indeed. Um, yeah, we. I mean, we, we. I chat a lot to um, my mortgage broker and uh, he's like, "Well, maybe if like interest rates show any sign of being like permanently, you know, plateauing or even some weakness that we could maybe see them falling in the future." He's like, I think that just puts a fire under a lot of people that have been trying to borrow and been, you know, maybe ready to purchase, upgrade, downgrade, whatever. Um, so I guess the focal point for a lot of people when we have those macro conversations is interest rates. Like it, mm. it, it kind of like we've got all this stuff around the outside, but then what does that mean for credit? Like what does it mean for my ability to spend confidently and for businesses to borrow and all this type of stuff? So interest rates, the last of the five, where do you see interest rates over the next 12, 24 months, however you want to frame that? Yeah, I think, I think that's absolutely the right way to think about it. If you're you know, planning to a large purchase, you're thinking about how am I going to finance that? How am I going to keep paying my mortgage? Which way are rates going is going to be pretty important rather than maybe not so much where they are today. Yeah. And so if you do think maybe the RBA is done uh, or at the very end, you have more confidence around saying, well, I'm going to make this large purchase and I think I can finance it because I know it's not a one-year investment. It's something I'll live in for five years or 10 years and therefore the payments will come down over that time. So I think that is the right thing to think about. And I think the RBA is also very aware of that. Um, so when it comes to interest rates over the next 12 months or even 18 months, we look out to the end of 2024, it's lower. I mean, I think that's you know, mm. the way it goes. How much lower you can get start to get a little bit of debate because I think there's prospects for saying, you know, they could get another rate hike in this year if we don't see that inflation number come down enough for the RBA. But I do think they'll start cutting uh, by September of next year. If we're sitting here today, I think you would have had the first rate cut. So that means that either rates are, are where they are today, but you've had that one hike and you've had one come down, or you're actually 25 basis points lower than where you are today, assuming they don't do any rate hikes. That's really semantics. I think the more important thing there for a lot of investors and for markets and what's being watched is that you're going to enter a rate cutting cycle uh, yeah. and the end of the rate hiking cycle. And that's really what markets can look for because as soon as they get any signal from the RBA or the Fed or anyone else around the world that done with rate hikes, that's as high as they're going to go. We're thinking about cuts now. They're going to reprice really quickly for that. Mm. That's going to drive investment in a big way. And you can look back historically and look at, say, how markets behaved after the end of the last rate hike to see that a lot of that gets priced in very quickly. So yeah. again, I think rates will be lower a year from now, but the more important part is that you'll be on this rate cutting cycle rather than a rate hiking cycle. And once that starts, you know, continues to move downwards for some time. I remember we spoke about this, I think it was last time or maybe the time before that when you came into the studio, uh, how important that initial period is when the expectations are reset. And I think some people, financial advisors, asset allocators at the moment are thinking really long and hard about how far away are we from that moment. But in the US, recently, we saw interest rates go up mm. at a time when we've seen rate, uh, sorry, inflation fall quite meaningfully. So you mentioned there you've kind of said like rates are lower with a caveat that maybe there's scope for one more if we see inflation persist. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I think this is when you get to the really nerdy conversation around the the, the neutral level of interest rates for yeah. an economy, uh, and that's kind of what's happening in the US at the moment in terms of 
bit disappointing they talk about it Jackson Hole, but you know, they, it's something that's very hard to measure. Like, what's the appropriate level for interest rates in the economy for it to just stand still? You know, where's neutral? If you're sitting in your car that's not going forward, not going backwards, what's that level of interest rates? And you can look back and say, in the US context, um, they think the long run view, this is the Fed, they, the Fed thinks the long run view on interest rates is 2.5%. So maybe they think the neutral level of interest rate is 2.5%. Um, 10 years ago, they thought that level was 4%, right? So now you have uh, sort of more changes around the inflation outlook. They may be thinking, well, we need to have higher level of neutral interest rates. Maybe it's going up. That means to be restrictive, actually the interest rates need to be higher than we thought they needed to be. And that's kind of why we're still seeing interest rates go up, even though you're seeing that momentum soften in the economy. I mean, the, the growth side of things has been surprising to the upside. The risk is there that if there's too much aggregate demand at the very basic level, too much growth means too much inflation, and they still have to work harder to squash it. So it kind of goes back to the argument, if rates have gone up 500 basis points, why is the economy still expanding? Because they actually need to be tighter to slow the economy because there's a higher level of interest rates that are neutral in the US. And I think the same debate is happening uh, in Australia to a degree as well. So you know where that level is, how much tighter you have to get. Um, but again, if we get one more rate hike from the from the RBA, if we get to uh, another 25 basis points higher, I mean, that's very different to like six months ago where people were like, oh, interest rate in Australia could be 6%. You know, it's <laughs> it's not peaking out um, at, at the same level. So it's definitely having that impact and those expectations are changing. Um, and again, long and variable lags. We're seeing the consumer has been resilient. It's going to start feeling that pain with those higher mortgage payments coming through in the second, third, uh, even the fourth quarter of this year. Uh, and so it's all going to create that drag on growth. Unemployment rate's going to start to go up a little bit. People will be a bit more hesitant um, around how they view it. And that's going to lead the RBA to really signal the end and, and then think about rate cuts to, to get growth going because their growth forecasts aren't really living up the potential for what Australia could deliver. Mm. At the beginning of the year, everyone was talking about the interest rate cliff or something like fixed rate cliff or something mm. like this, and those would be rolling off around about right now, August, September. Yeah, it was mainly yeah second and then third quarters of the bulk of it. Yeah. yeah. So I guess we're right in the thick of that now. Mm. And so... Actually, I've got a follow-up question to what you just mentioned. Where do you see the neutral rate in Australia? Uh, well, I think in, in real terms, it's slightly above zero. Uh, so that's, <laughs> it's really easy to come to. So that means that you know if the the inflation target uh, is sort of between two and three, say two and a half percent, that means we think the the, the real rate has to be a little bit above zero, say 50 basis points. And so the nominal rate is about 3%. Yeah. Um, so that might give you a long run view. Um, those things around what the neutral level of interest rates or R star as it gets referred to, structural changes, very slow moving around how we see things, not something that's going to change week to week uh, and very, very difficult to measure. So, you, you know, you can go back and do some econometrics or go into various websites where they actually produce it. So in the US, you can go and look at the FRED website and they'll give you estimates for what it is, but uh, it's something that's very difficult to measure until you have hindsight on what it actually was. So the, the risk is that it's a little bit higher in, in Australia and that those those real rates have to be a little bit higher to, to justify that slowing in the economy. But I think this is something that's going to be debated. Uh, it's not going to matter for the immediate future. What the markets are going to be focused on is have central banks finished hiking rates. <laughs> When's that first cut yeah. coming? Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so interest rates have gone up in the last couple of years, to put it mildly. Stocks have gone up recently. Hmm. Property seems to be extremely resilient, shall we say, in Australia. Have you been surprised by that? Uh, yeah, I mean, of the two, have has the equity market or 
the housing market being the more surprising factor. Mm. I think it's the housing market. Uh, you know, our view was that Australia was going to avoid a recession, largely because we had positive net migration and we didn't see the same <clears throat> uh, weaknesses that we saw present in other markets like Europe or in the US. That's still largely playing out. I mean, the growth outlook's pretty soft. Um, but we didn't think about the housing market being something that was going to turn around while rates were still going up. So if you look at you know any rate, uh, sorry, housing market cycle from peak to trough and then back up again, they're quite V-shaped, but you don't see that turn until the rates actually start being mm. cut. So that turn coming through when rates were still rising was quite surprising and something that didn't happen. And again, it comes back to, I think, some of your points earlier where people were either you know, cashed up, saw house prices fall and, and took the opportunity to buy something uh, and they were just in a position where they didn't have to worry about leverage or financing so much. So, I mean, there's definitely anecdotal evidence of that in, in certain eastern cities in Australia. Uh, and then the other thing that was coming through is the fact that, you know, um, there's just big imbalances between supply and demand and housing in Australia, which is, is supporting the long run view of the of the market. So people are, are eager to step in. Um, if it continues, though, obviously we're seeing those monthly numbers on property uh, start to improve. I think we're 6% off the peak at the moment. Um, I mean, as we get to the warmer months, you get more supply coming through. Mm. You know, maybe that appreciation starts to, to slow down a little bit. Uh, it takes a little bit longer to get back to that um, prior peak than what it was, especially at those higher interest rates. So I think we, we definitely frame it as more stabilization in the housing market than a recovery. So I guess then the, the question is, does that mean if it's a stabilization, maybe property prices, maybe they can tread water for a while? Yeah, it probably stopped declining. They might go up a little bit and on a monthly, monthly basis. But um, yeah, it doesn't mean that they're going to start to, to shoot back up to where they were, I think, is the, <clears throat> the our view of it rather than thinking about markets saying, well, everything's starting to turn around. It's great. Um, but again, coming back to your earlier point, you know, if the RBA thinks the housing market's too strong and that's something they want to slow down and they know they can do that through interest rates. Uh, they think that's going to create too much inflation given, you know, some of the core parts that are related to, to building, which is becoming softer. You know, they can sort of say, housing market's too strong for us. We're worried about the impact that actually has on broader spending. Let's keep rates higher. Mm. So my next two questions, um, and I was just looking at them because these are questions that are very loaded in, in the sense of like, there's a lot to it. Like if you I thought, expect nothing less. <laughs> if you thought the AI conversation then mixed with the the most important um, economic indicators was a big question for Kerry to answer. The next two are kind of the two that are... I guess, they, because they bridge on geopolitics and these types of things. And we've had a lot of people on the show talk about like a, I think they called it like a multipolar world or mm. something like this, where the US has, has been the superpower, but now obviously China is a superpower and our you know, regional neighbor. And some people, a lot of people who are investors are allocating a lot of money to what would historically be called emerging markets or Asia generally. Um, and... I'm curious, like JP Morgan Asset Management globally, you guys got a huge team, been doing this for a very long time. How you see the implications of that broadly speaking, the, the kind of the rise of China alongside the USA. And maybe then after that, we can dive into maybe the investing implications, but just generally speaking, how do you view that? Yeah, I mean, it is uh, such a big question and we have, written about it extensively over the last few years. I mean, we, we actually wrote a paper called The Multipolar World. Oh, right. uh, and we've had uh, different groups than um, JP Morgan have, have published their, their views around what this actually means. Uh, I think that to, to summarize and to start, I think it is that multipolar world. We 
push back a little bit of idea when we get deglobalization. Oh, it's deglobalization, it's deglobalization. Because globalization is a really big term. I think most people just simply think about trade than yeah. goods. You know, they're maybe in the Australian, uh, sorry, in the US China context, they're thinking about um, the sort of tech war, if you want to call it that, or the strategic positioning and, and dominance in, in tech and data, um, and thinking, well, that's that's deglobalization. That's a part of it. If you look at how trade uh, globally has gone since 2008, 2009, since the GFC, it's kind of flatlined and come off a little bit. If you look at how services has been traded around the world, that's continued to rise. You know, as we mm -hmm. become uh, more digital, uh, more data dependent, that just means there's more services being traded around the world, more offshoring of many uh, aspects of, of working life uh, coming through, that actually grows. And then you can think about um, how instantly global we are in terms of thinking about the financial markets as well. You know, the dominance of the, the US dollar in the financial system, mm. again, being challenged, but it's not really changing that much, right? So that's why we think about deglobalization as something that's multifaceted and what we're really thinking about in terms of what a lot of people mean is just trade flows and the reorganizing supply chains and whether we're going to see this big rupture and so a multipolar world is definitely something we could see you know along political lines in terms of how you know countries are operated uh, you can think about west east or you can break that up to sort of democracies versus autocracies or you know any way you want to think about it but it doesn't mean that the the a level of trade is necessarily going to fall it's just going to be reorganized in different ways um, and it is going to have some some longer run impacts but they're very long run impacts you've already seen it start to come through from you know the trade wars under you know 2016 or 15 when they come through when the us really started hammering um uh, tariffs on, on China. A lot of that point in time, businesses started to say, this looks like a bit of a risk. Let's start moving our supply chains into Vietnam and other parts of Asia. Mm. And you've seen them benefit from that. So um, that deglobalization debate is something that's going to keep going for some time now. Uh, and I think it's something that's going to be uh, very important when we think about how you allocate to these markets in the future. It's really interesting. Like just in the last couple of weeks, we've been here at Rask, we've been, had so many more conversations with brands out of China that are looking to Australia as an opportunity or Asia, generally speaking. Brands that we probably never would have come across five years ago. And now they're looking here and they see opportunity um, down under. And it's been really surprising how they view the Australian context and how we view them and the ideas around trust and commerce, how it is done. Generally speaking, that's been really eye-opening to me. But we've had a lot of people come on the show, Kerry, and they talk about, and these are asset allocators, CIOs, like chief investment officers, really like some of Australia's top financial advisors, all different types of people come on the show and talk about their view hmm. on emerging markets, generally speaking, whether it's India, China, um, any of those types of markets. And some of them have, I would say, over the last three years in speaking with them, have become, have built their conviction in those markets. Um, some people say that it's going to continue to be the engine room for the next 20 years, and they're allocating heavily there. Like You've got a global equities portfolio, they're allocating substantial assets in that sleeve to emerging markets. And I guess I'm just curious on your view, generally speaking, maybe it's maybe a question around, well, how much growth comes from these markets versus what we traditionally know with developed economies or the West, so to speak? I mean, at the uh, caveat, this, uh, at the economic level, absolutely right. There's going to be more growth coming out of the emerging world than the developed world because 
they're emerging. <laughs> they get the benefit of like all the productivity enhancements that are going to come through. They have better demographics. They're going to enhance this demographic dividend, they call it. I mean, that dividend doesn't exist in China anymore because the demographics mm. going the other way. But places like India absolutely does. Look around Africa, 100% does. Uh, even parts of the Middle East, they're going to see that growth rate because they have that better demographic profile. And so if you think about what drives growth, it's you know labor markets and people, uh, capital investment and how productive they are. So as they build that productivity, as they have better workforces and as they get that investment from other places around the world, that capital, they're going to grow faster. The difference is, though, that economic growth does not equal market growth. Look at the US. It is an aging economy. It's slowing down. What's mm. the equity market done this year? Yeah. It's gone up because it's not the you know the market is not always the economy. So I think that's the big difference. We would definitely agree that if you're thinking about a global equity exposure, it absolutely has to have emerging markets in it. Um, it's generally largely been underweight for most people in Australia in terms mm. of their, their global exposure. They tend to think about the US and it's you know 50% of developed market, developed market indices. So they get a bit exposed to that. That's some of the risk at the moment because it's highly concentrated in a few names. When we think about emerging markets now though, um, I think the breakdown is more emerging markets and emerging markets ex-China. So mm -hmm. it's how your view on China is very separated from the rest of the emerging world because there are very different drivers of what's going on. The rise in India being an important part of that. What we're seeing around uh, ASEAN and the rest of Asia because of some of these relocation of supply chains, because of you know uh, the drive for, for chips and, and semiconductors, you know, benefiting Korea and, and Taiwan. Uh, it's really going to become much more nuanced and saying, oh, I can't just have emerging markets exposure. I need to actually think about what parts of the emerging world are actually going to benefit. And you know, maybe where some of those geopolitical risks lie when it comes to thinking about how the world operates mm -hmm. as well. So we're definitely seeing that more often. People are treating China separately because it has separate drivers. It comes with uh, additional volatility, um, but also really strong um, potential as well. So if China, you know, comes out with some big block stimulus, not that we think they are going to, but if they come out with something like that in the next few months, the Bitcoin market there is very cheap and it's yeah. going to go up a lot. <laughs> uh, so we have this view of people can't write off China given given the potential for it to, to come back, but they might have a different allocation towards it given that the, the, the overarching geopolitical risk that's starting to creep in and how people are treating it. Whereas if they look at the rest of emerging markets, they really should be thinking about demographics that are coming through the long run growth, Structural growth. Yeah, improvements yeah. in um, GDP per capita, the consumption that's going to come through, all those things which are really going to benefit in terms of being a much stronger uh, improvement to your portfolio returns. If you want to again think about an efficient frontier where emerging mm. markets sit, usually in the top right, they drive a lot more return with a little bit more volatility for your portfolio, but they're back in how you get your portfolio returns um, higher over the long run. I'd imagine you guys uh, like the entire JP Morgan Asset Management brand, not just here in Australia, talk a lot about this. So I'll, I'll refer people to the website. Um, like you said, there's a lot of you may have you may have spawned the idea of multipolar. Uh, maybe I don't think it. so. I don't, that's been that's been around for a long time, um, but it's uh, it's a good way of thinking about it rather than thinking about just deglobalization. It's actually the world's going to yeah. be fragmented more, but not fully fragmented. Again, coming back, there's. Too many global issues that can't be resolved. Uh, thinking about where commodity prices are, how people, commodities are, excuse me, how people want to address um, decarbonisation, the fact that climate change is a global issue, not a national issue. All these things are going to keep the world together to a certain extent. It's only going to be aspects mm. of deglobalisation that really come through in terms of trade and maybe in terms of you know the dollar dominance. But again, very long run uh, issues. Mm. Sorry. Yeah, that's really interesting that you. You phrase it that way. I haven't heard it put that way around. These issues are global challenges, so that world basically has to be united to some extent, right? Mm. We have to because we know deep, 
decarbonisation is a massive issue all around the world, right? Um, those, those are really fascinating conversations. And I think that that, for anyone listening to this, and if you don't have exposure to those types of markets, now is the time to start thinking about it. Um, better time than ever to start thinking about it. But maybe um, we'll finish with a bit of a game. We started with a bit of fun, a bit of tongue in cheek. My final thing is, I feel like I've maybe stolen this from someone. Surely someone's done this game before. But um, let's call it higher or lower the macro edition, Kerry. So I will just give you five variables and then you say higher or lower. If you want to add any context for sure, just going for a bit of conviction here. But we are always going to say refer back to the JP Morgan <laughs> Asset Management website for a proper don't, uh, deep dive. Don't go back and listen to this afterwards <laughs> yeah, to see after how long yeah. I was. Yeah, do not do that. Maybe in two years it will show up in Google <laughs> Bard or something like that. But um, go check out the website. Um, you've got, you're, you were saying off air before as well, you're doing a bit of a, you've got to go on the road again. You've got to do your, your big um, macro updates for clients all around yeah, the a lot Yeah, a lot of what we've discussed um, is coming out in our long-term capital market assumptions mm. paper, which is our 10 to 15 year view of the world. So all those things about so good. China, uh, all those things around diversification that's been a big problem, um, thinking about the broader macro impacts of, of how inflation works and what it means to policy rates in the long run. Uh, it's all included in there. And so yeah, it's a, it's a hefty read at 100 and something pages, <laughs> but uh, there's usually a good like two minute summary on the website or something you can yeah, great. watch. And that's published once a year, if I'm not mistaken. Is that yeah, it takes about six months or nine months to actually do all the work. So it's uh, yeah. these. I always say on the show that these are the the best reports to get your hands on. If you spend even if it's just a few days of your year to tap into the research that you're doing, to read through them and have an understanding of just what are the machinations out there beyond the shores of Australia. If you're stuck in the vortex of Australian news, yeah. If you're an investor, and you're thinking long term and, and getting away from the, the the daily day sort of news grind around markets. I mean, that's really what matters what to be honest want. yeah absolutely okay so higher or lower um let's go we've got five things kerry higher or lower price of a 2017 toyota hilux in good condition what color is it we'll go standard white uh it's lower lower yeah if you said red maybe i would have gone up but <laughs> white and no okay um we'll say u.s stock market higher or lower we'll go s&p 500 uh can I say flat? Because I think it's mm. you know probably not going to go down. Uh, on that, I think there's definitely more of a uh, buy by the weakness in terms of the market performance from the from here. But I mean, it's going to have to recover to go back to the twenty percent gains we already saw this year because it's down about four percent from that. So um, I think it's going to be a case of, of buy the weakness when it comes to the US. So flat to maybe up a little bit. The Japanese stock market has done very well in recent times after a bit of a hiatus, we could say. Higher or lower? Uh, higher. I mean, it's uh, I call it the the Vegemite market. People love it or hate it over the years, <laughs> uh, but it's it's definitely getting its act together in terms of a lot of positives around the economy. Inflation seems to be structurally higher. Bank of Japan slowly moving away from those ultra accommodative policies, which should you know help the financial stocks. Uh, the currency is very weak, which is helping the exporters. Um, and there's also those sort of corporate governance changes that have been building since you know Abenomics in 2012, which so are still coming to the fore. So, uh, one of our higher conviction ideas would definitely be China at the moment. I mean, sorry, Japan at the Japan. moment. Great. Okay. That's okay. That's good. I actually like that uh, outlook. Thank you very much. Number four, Aussie shares. And we can take whatever index, but Aussie shares. Uh, yeah, I just look at the ASX 200. Um, I'd have to say, if we're just looking at the price returns, obviously, you get dividends if everyone loves those. Uh, but, you know, we've had a, a pretty middling market. I think it's like sort of three and a half, four percent 4% so far this year through, through the end of the month. Um, it, 
it's not been something that's going to strongly turn around. The only thing that I think would see a big lift higher for the Australian market would be if you got a big policy announcement out of, of China that was really going to see demand for commodities rise massively mm. uh, and lift the resources names. I mean, the earnings revisions haven't been great uh, that have been coming out lately. So I, I think it's a case of um, you might hold on to the gains you've had this year, but not expecting much more. Okay, so maybe flattish. Mm. Yep. Finally, a diversified all-of-market Australian bond index. So I'm just trying to say that Australian bonds, generally speaking. I mean, where yields are today, I, I think you could do a lot worse than going into just any sort of core government bond index because, again, if you have lower inflation, uh, falling rates over the long run, uh, is meaning the yield's going to fall. You're going to lock in those higher coupon payments that are going to come through. You're going to get that capital appreciation from the mm. prices falling. Uh, it's It's very difficult to look past fixed income at the moment in terms of you basically want to be at this point in the cycle owning things that pay you income yep. uh, when there's the big questions around how you know highly valued some parts of the equity market have become. So income paying assets are, are very much obviously defensive, uh, but the fixed income market is looking the most appealing it has in a very long time. Even if there's been a lot of volatility mm. in those bond yields, obviously they, they crept up in the last month or so, but they've started to come down again. Uh, so I think that, that fixed income is a from a risk-adjusted return point of view, a very strong proposition at the moment. I think so too. Um, so we've got uh, Toyota Hilux. You said lower. Is that correct? If it's because it's white. Um, <laughs> That's a very, very, you know, just academic-based thesis <laughs> on that one. Yeah. Uh, US stock market, flat. Um, Japanese stock market, higher. Aussie shares, flat-ish. Um, bonds, higher, I guess, or... It's a bullish outlook for you from here. Yeah, I think oh, just on the US one, it's it's, it's flat up from this point, flat just up. because we've had a pullback in the last month or so. So we have to get back on up. But I think uh, to to go, we have to go back up to twenty percent gains you had, and then beat that. So I think that okay, that's a bit that of an ask. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's pretty good. And I'm always. Um, Really, I always feel more positive after I speak to you, Kerry, because I always feel like I am, I am too optimistic sometimes. I'm, no, I'm, but you yeah. always you bring the common sense, right? But you look through a lot of the noise because that's what you've got to do, right? You've got to look through what's happening this week, this month, and look beyond that and give a really rational take based on a lot of literature and a lot of research that you guys do. Um, again, once again, I'll direct everyone to the the links. Um, they'll be available in your podcast player, so you can go and check them out. Uh, you can head to the website and find Kerry's writings as well. Um, so, mate, thanks for. I know it's only for you. Your office is about thirty meters from our <laughs> office, which is absolutely spectacular. But I really do appreciate you taking the time to come in. Uh, no, thank you very much uh, for for coming on. I'm looking forward to the next podcast when you're interviewing um, Google Bard. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> no, mate, I appreciate it. You've definitely done one for the human, so I appreciate it. All right, thanks. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. 
Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.